Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's so much to discuss. We just got the Torah at Mount Sinai, which is really the most epic moment in the entire Torah. You know, the sages say there's 600,000 letters in the Torah. And interestingly, famously, if you count them, there's only approximately a little bit more than 300,000 letters. And there are different answers that are given, but they all speak to our lives and the nature of reality and the nature of our souls. One answer is that you have to count the white spaces in between the letters and that those are entities as well. And then that will give you double the number. Now we're getting closer to 600,000. And that's a very, very deep idea because as the Ramban says in his introduction to Torah, the Torah is black fire on white fire, meaning to say that the black fire are those aspects of reality that we can see with our eyes, that which is revealed in the world. The white fire is there, it exists, we just can't see it, but it's very much there. So in other words, when you begin to count the Jews, there's the quality that can be seen and there's the quality that can't be seen. And that gives us another amazing way to look at the world. Reb Shlomo used to talk about this a lot. And it's, this is something that's really like in a, a very deep well, like it's endlessly deep, but it sounds very, very simple. It's deceptively simple at the same time. And it's the, the following. There is an inside and an outside to everything. Let me say that again. Everything has an outside and an inside. And the more you think about that thought, the more you'll realize there is to that thought. And I'll tell you something else. Even the inside has an inside. And even the inside of the inside has an inside. Because everything is worlds within worlds within worlds within worlds. That's one way that we can get to 600,000. The revealed and those aspects which are here, but we can't see it, right? So that's the black letters and that's the white space between the black letters. I'll tell you how important the white space between the letters is and that it's a that it has integrity to it, that it's not just blank space. If two letters touch, everybody knows that every Jew is a letter in the Torah. And that if one letter is missing, then the whole Torah scroll is not kosher. You all know that. But I'm going to tell you something even deeper, which is that if every letter that's supposed to be there, it's all there. But two letters are touching, the Torah scroll is not kosher. Now listen to the reason why, because this really blew my mind the first time I heard it. Because some of the white space that needs to be there is not there. Mm -hmm. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you go deeper into this thought, if the white space represents the unknown aspects of reality, that means that we have to exist with a certain amount of the unknown. And to the extent that we don't, something's off. You see, 
If you come and approach the world from a more secular scientific understanding, lack of information is confounding. I don't know. There's a problem. I must, I must know. And that's a great impulse, by the way, because then we solve diseases and we solve social problems and we travel to Mars and we do all sorts of amazing things when we won't tolerate not knowing. But then it comes to a different level, the level of can't knowing. There are realms that we can know, and within those realms we must know. But simultaneously we have to understand that there's another category, which is can't knowing. And that's the white space. And that white space between the letters can't be limited. Because that's also part of the human condition. That's also what it means to be alive in this world. Remember, one of the ways to look at the world, I'll give you a, a, what I think is a nice visual, is understanding the horizon. So just to remind you what the horizon is, if you're standing on the beach and you're facing the water and there's the sky in front of you, that line where the sky meets the water, that's called the horizon. So imagine you're standing there, you're looking at the horizon, which is very majestic. Wow, the sky is meeting the water. And you say to yourself, I want to visit that place where the sky meets the water. So you start swimming and it moves a little bit further away. And you go, wait a second. I know what the problem is. I'm not swimming fast enough. So you get into a speedboat <laughs> and you go really fast toward the horizon and the horizon keeps on receding. I believe that all of life, all of reality can be summed up in one sentence, which is the interaction between the infinite and the finite. We dwell amidst the infinite. That space between where you're sitting and where I'm standing, or between you and the wall, or between you and your hand, if you're looking at your hand, you could call that air. And on some level, you'd be 100% right. There is air between me and you, right? But can I give you another much deeper way of understanding what that is, what that space is? We dwell in God's consciousness. <laughs> that is God's consciousness between me and you. All of these spaces that seem to be empty in this world, all of that white fire that we dwell amidst is God's consciousness. So you wonder, is God paying attention to me? I'm praying so much for a particular thing or particular things, and it seems like I'm not being heard. You dwell, we dwell amidst God's consciousness. We couldn't be closer. Everything is heard. Everything is taken into account. You know, I was thinking, what would be the best date you could ever go on? Right? And I think that the best date you could ever go on 
is where every single thing you say is endlessly fascinating to the other person. Right? You're like, you know, I think maybe I, I might order the avocado egg rolls. Avocado egg rolls? Are you kidding me? I love avocado. No one orders avocado egg rolls. I can't believe that you like that. And then you mention that I just got that shirt at Macy's. You've been to Macy's? I, unbelievable. And then you find out a little bit more, right? That the person who you're on this date with, oh, by the way, if I didn't mention it, God is the person you're on the date with. <laughs> because God finds everything about us endlessly fascinating. And one of the reasons is because God, in fact, created us. Now, can you imagine, like, let's go a little bit further with the date. And then you say, you know something, I, I have to admit to a guilty pleasure, K-pop. I created K-pop. What? <laughs> yeah, and music, by the way. I don't like to talk about it, but yeah. Oh, and ears. <laughs> and, and ears. <laughs> and sound waves. Sound waves. Yeah, that was mine. Not bragging. Not bragging. Rabbi Green says, what's amazing is how omnipresent God is. He's everywhere. He's in everything. And yet, simultaneously, he remains anonymous. Think about the Grand Canyon. If you painted the Grand Canyon, you would very proudly sign your name in the corner of the painting. God didn't paint the Grand Canyon. He created the Grand Canyon and didn't sign it at all. And this is true of every aspect of reality. And how endlessly fascinating does God find us? You know, if you eat a cookie and a moment later you've forgotten about the fact that you ate a cookie. But God is right there watching you digest the cookie. <laughs> directing all of your enzymes and sending all of the different nutrients to the different parts of your body. After you've forgotten about you, God is totally on the scene, fascinated, directing, highly involved. So with that in mind, as I mentioned, we have Parshas Yisra, the giving of the Torah itself. And there are many people who try to wrap their minds around this historical event of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And it's a very unique event in world history because every other major religion has one prophet. And that one prophet receives the word of God and then tells everybody else, trust me. What's so amazingly, groundbreakingly different about Judaism is three million, approximately, three million people were at Mount Sinai and all heard exactly the same thing. It's wild. There is no other religion like that. And, and that's what it says in the Torah itself. And if it weren't true, imagine how easy that would be to disprove. 
So this revelation at Mount Sinai, let's go deeper into it. So many amazing things to discuss about it. Endless, it's endless, it's endless. So we have this amazing gematria from the Balaturim. He's writing about a thousand years ago that Sinai, as in Mount Sinai, Sinai is the same gematria as the word sulam, which means ladder, because Mount Sinai is the connection between heaven and earth. Okay. Now with that in mind, every soul that was Jewish or was ever going to become Jewish, all of those souls were at Mount Sinai together. So if that's the case, it says in the Talmud that while you're in your mother's stomach, an angel comes and teaches you the Torah. So the question is, if we already got the Torah at Mount Sinai, what do we have to get the Torah again in our mother's stomach for? And Reb Shlomo gives the following answer. He says, at Mount Sinai, we got the national mission of the Jewish people. In your mother's stomach, you learn what you individually have to accomplish during your own lifetime. So now with that in mind, I want to tell you something from the Pischei Sharem, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, And he explains a very interesting phrase that you've probably heard, Knesset Yisrael, which, you know, probably you think, well, what does Knesset Yisrael mean? That means the Jewish people. Okay, it's just another name for the Jewish people, fine. But Kabbalistically speaking, it actually has a much more exalted and more precise definition. And it's going to answer a question that I had as well. Knesset Yisrael actually is in the highest of all the worlds in Atsilus. And then underneath that, in the next world lower, you have what's called the Kisei Kavid, the throne of glory. And underneath the throne of glory, in that same world, you have where all of the Jewish souls emanate from. So I had a question. Why is it that all the Jewish souls are coming from underneath the throne of glory, that's only in the second highest world. We know that Israel was the first thought of God at the beginning of creation. So how could it be that the Jewish souls are sort of joining the party so late in the game? Then I found out, oh, there's this thing called Knesset Yisrael, which is even higher, where all of the Jewish souls join together before they go into individual bodies. So you've got this collected soul, which is above. That's what Knesset Yisrael is. Okay, now here's the amazing part. Just like one soul goes into one body, the collective soul of the Jewish people also comes down. But what does it come down into? Not a body with arms and legs. It comes down and becomes the land of Israel itself. Do you understand what that means? That means your body is the host of one of the souls of Israel. But the land of Israel is the host of the collected soul of the Jewish people. And so now this brings us back to this idea of the ladder. Because the more Torah that you do, the more you climb higher, and the more you're able to fix 
not just your individual job in this world and accomplish that, but also the collective job of the Jewish people itself. Because as you climb higher, you can get to the Kisei HaKavid, the throne of glory, and you can go even higher to where Knesset Yisrael is at the top of the heavens. And the pathway to fixing your individual and collective soul is through the ladder of keeping the in the mitzvahs. So with that in mind, listen to this teaching. The name Yaakov, you know, we have Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And each of them have a different thing that they correlate with. So Yaakov correlates with Torah. The Balaturim points out the last three letters of Yaakov's name add up to 172, which is the number of words in the Ten Commandments. Yud is the highest letter. The first letter of Yaakov is the Ten Commandments, followed by the number of words in the Ten Commandments. Do you know what that means on a very simple level, if you haven't figured it out? The Torah is divine. The Torah was not written by a person, by a human. It can't be that precise and be working on that many levels, especially if he was born, I don't know how many years before, the giving of the Torah itself. How can his name be an exact description of the Torah? There's a whole window into the infinity of the Torah here. This is my point. So let's, let's go further. So the Medrash says that before God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, that he offered it to other nations. And there was sort of a test because they asked, what's in the Torah? To the tribes of Yishmael, he said, don't steal. And they were like, well, that's kind of a deal breaker because that's kind of the basis of our economy. To the tribe of Esav, he said, don't kill. And they said, yeah, but we kind of live by the sword. So I don't think it's going to work for us. Now, what test did he give to the Jewish people? Because here you see that before God is giving the Torah, he's giving out what for at least two other nations were absolute deal breakers. And now listen to this, because this really touches on the deepest aspect of our life again. It's going back to the black fire and the white fire, the idea that we live with the unknown, okay? It sounds like an innocent detail that's just kind of mentioned in the Parsha, but listen to how deep it actually is. This is the Eretzvi. So God says, put a boundary around the mountain and you're not going to be able to touch the mountain. And if anyone touches the mountain, they're going to die. What was going on on a deeper level? You ready for this? Hashem was saying, there is going to be a boundary to how much you're going to be able to understand about your life in this world. Right? That's the white fire and the black fire. That's the idea of the infinite and the finite. 
are you willing to accept that there is going to be a boundary in this world that beyond which you will never fully understand me? Are you willing, prepared to enter into a committed relationship with me, says God, knowing that there's going to be a lot that's going to remain mystifying in your life, in history. And we said, God, we want you. We love you. We know you're good. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Na sevenishma. We will do and we will hear. Now this idea, we will do and we will hear, there are some people who say that Nasevinishma happened after we received the Torah. And it's this idea that this Nasevinishma relationship with God also goes on after the Torah is given. As we go through life, we commit ourselves to saying, even if I don't understand, we know that God is good, and so I take it upon myself. So the Katskarebi explains this enduring, ongoing, idea of na sevenishma in a very interesting way. He says that it's like climbing a ladder. So again, the words are, we will do and we will hear. He says, every time you do, you climb another step up the ladder, and now you're closer to heaven to hear the word of God. Isn't that interesting? We will do and we will hear. As you climb higher, you will hear more. So someone asked me, is it, are you under, do you feel like very pressured like to say things like, like Torah? Like, and I, like is it, is it like a, he didn't use the word chore, but that, that's what he was saying. And it's not because I, I love Torah. I love Torah. But I said, sometimes it's a little stressful if I don't have inspiration and there's not something to say. And he said, yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. And then I told him from Rebbe Eger that, that when a child suckles, that the more the child suckles, the more milk comes out. That the more you learn, the more that comes down. So it's not like you've got a canteen filled with water in the middle of the desert and you've got to really, like, you've got to take your sips very, very carefully because you only got a certain amount. That's not how Torah works. And you say, oh, this is a great idea. I'm going to save it for later. Just say it because there's more that's going to then come down. There's more comes down and more comes down and more comes down because it is endless. As I was telling you, with this teaching about the way Yaakov is spelled. It is endless. Okay. So now, some people have problems wrapping their head around this idea that at Mount Sinai, God spoke. But we had approximately three million witnesses 
there? Who told their children, who told their children, who told their children, who told us? And one of the sort of shocking illustrations of that, and to give you another way of looking at how close the experience of Mount Sinai is historically to our day and age today. You think, well, that was thousands of years ago. What are you talking about, how close it was? Listen to this. I heard this from Rabbi Beryl Wine. If you think of a Seder table, okay, and you think of a family around a Seder table, and you think about what is the most amount of generations that can be at a Seder table. So let's say it's a grandparent to a grandchild, or thank God, many Seder tables have great-grandparents and great-grandchildren. And if you take the grandchild at its youngest age, and the great-grandparent or the grandparent at its eldest age, how many Seder tables are there between us today and leaving Egypt? And the answer is something like 24, which is nothing. That's nothing. So it, it just tells you how close that experience is and how we have this direct transmission from parent to child, and that's what it is. You know, what's, what's kind of interesting as, as things become more technologically advanced, what is the most credible form of testimony? Right, if you, you can think of it in a legal way. So, you know, it, it used to be that if you had a photograph of a person shooting a gun, what more could you hope for than a photograph of the crime itself? And now today with Photoshop and AI and all the rest, you can show someone a photograph of the most heinous crime. And they'll go, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. Before it's like, okay, just like lead them to the noose. <laughs> we, what, Who's going to hit the switch to electrocute that guy? We can't kill that guy fast enough. Now it's sort of like, yeah, could be, right? So, so what I'm trying to tell you is it's like everything old is new again. That testimony from a trusted witness is the most credible, credible form of testimony. And we know how credible our parents are. We know how credible our grandparents are. We know how credible our great-grandparents are. And how do we know? Because they died over and over and over again to protect this truth and to hand it to us. You know, I, I, I often think the, the Vilna Gon one of our greatest, greatest, greatest Torah giants who lived in, you know, late, late 1700s. He, he did something that, it's a sort of a Kabbalistic idea that, that Sadiqim did, like a lot of the Hasidic masters did it. And, and, and the Vilna Gon, who was one of the greatest Kabbalists, wasn't a Hasid, but was, well, he was a Hasid, but wasn't Hasidic, if you 
know what I'm saying, but was one of history's greatest Kabbalists, by the way. And by the way, the Vilna Gon, who's really like more popularly appreciated in terms of his genius in halacha and, and the revealed things, considered his Kabbalistic accomplishments greater than his Talmudic and halachic accomplishments. Just so you know. And I've been fortunate to learn a little bit of the Vilna Gon on some of these topics. And I can tell you, it's just, it's beyond. It's, it's beyond. It's beyond, beyond, beyond. And was so privileged to be able to daven at his gravesite not, not so long ago. So, so what was this practice? They would go out into something called galus. Galus means exile. And so these very holy people would, would basically go out in, in rags and they would wander just from village to village where they were anonymous, no one knew who they were. And they would experience what the Shekhinah, this aspect of God's presence, which is in exile, what it means for the Shekhinah to be in exile. These great people would wander and experience this level of exile in a personal way. And one of the things that the Vilna Gon did while he was doing this practice is he was collecting all of these manuscripts all over because he wanted to make the most authoritative, accurate version of the Gomorrah that he could make. And so this person who had a, a, a brain like 10 planets would be looking at every version of a handwritten manuscript to make the definitive corrected text of the Gomorrah. And that's one of the commentaries that's on the page of the Gomorrah to this day. It's not in the text itself, which is amazing. It's on the side, and it's actually very small. You know, you, you hear a story like that, and you think that, oh, he just corrected the main text. Not so fast. Right? just gives us a little bit of humility to think about his greatness. And he's just this little tiny side commentary among many other commentaries on the side of the page. But when you think about how much of his soul and his life and his blood he put into doing this, right? Now here's the point of this whole story that I'm telling you. If he noticed that there was a word that should be corrected in the main text and he's going to in indicate that it should be changed on his side commentary, you ready for this? He fasted that day. Oh there was a mistake that he found. And he elucidated that mistake in his little commentary off to the side. He wouldn't make that notation unless he fasted that day. That means that he had such reverence for the text that even a mistake in the text, which had to be corrected, it was such an act of devotion and piety to, to uproot even a mistake in this holy place that it required him fasting to be able 
to show the proper kavod, respect, to even correct it. Right? Imagine, imagine on the floor of the Holy of Holies inside the Beis HaMikdash. Somehow there was a little crumpled up piece of paper. How did it get there? It's like that should have been in a, it shouldn't be on the floor there. Or like a tissue, somehow a tissue fell out of, just blew in there and it's like on the floor there. What's a, what's a tissue doing on the floor of the Holy of Holies? Well, you might say, let me just go and pick it up and I'll throw it out, clean it up. But to walk into the Holy of Holies, even just to pick up some refuse to take it out, to walk in, I better clean myself up good. To stand in that place, to even to correct a mistake, so to speak, to walk into the body of the Gomorrah itself, the main text of the Gomorrah itself, and to try to remove a mistake, who might even walk into that space without fasting? And that's to correct a mistake. Not, hey, everybody, I connected a mistake. No, no, no. Hold your applause. Please hold your applause. It's just something I do, because I'm the Vilna Go. No. No, the utmost, utmost piety and humility. The utmost, the utmost, the utmost trembling in fear. So, 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 so this, is, this is who we receive the Torah from. These are our parents. These are our grandparents. These are our great-grandparents. This is, this is the authoritativeness, the accuracy, the honesty, the self-sacrifice of the line of transmission from the three million approximately who were there. So I heard a story. There's two stories from the Kutzka Rebbe that are just... that are just so strong, you know? So the Sfas Emes, remember the Kutzka Rebbe was married to the sister of the Chidush Rim. The Chidush Rim was the first Ger Rebbe. So the Kutzka Rebbe was married to the sister of the Chidush Rim. So the Sfas Emes was the grandson of the Chidush Rim. He was the second Ger Rebbe, also one of the greatest Hasidic masters. And when he was a little boy, he went to visit the, he went to visit the, his aunt, who was the Kutzker Rebbe's wife, the Rebbitson, the Kutzker Rebbitson, right? This is the only time that he met the Kutzker Rebbe. And he was a little boy. And he reports this story. He says that he overheard the Rebbitson talking to the Gabai right, the assistant of the Kutzkarebi. And she was saying, you know, there's stuff missing from our house. People are stealing. And by the way, who would steal from the Kutzkarebi, right? That, that in itself is mind-blowing, but that aside. She, and and, and, and the, the, the Gabai says back to her, well, what do you expect? I mean, everything is like Hefker. Everything is all over the place. Why shouldn't they steal? And then from the other room, 
The little boy, the Sfas Emes, hears the Katsuka Rebbe roar. Because God said, don't steal! And he said he saw a wall go up around him that he saw the rest of his life stopping him from another person's property as a barrier between him and someone else's property. Don't steal. Another story. The Orpene Moshe was a legendary sofer, a legendary scribe. When he died, he left over three pairs of tefillin that were new, that, that hadn't been sold yet. And you can imagine how amazing, how holy a scribe he must have been that the Katskarebi wanted one of those last pairs of tefillin for himself. And this is coming to illustrate the idea of don't covet, right? Because we just got the Torah and that's one of the, one of the Ten Commandments. So like everything else in life, if you want something, if you want the highest, 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 highest quality merchandise, it costs money. It's just the way it is. So these tefillin, these were the last three sets of tefillin that he made. Very expensive. So the Katskarebi scraped together basically all his money. And to, to buy one of those one of those sets. And one of the students of, the, of that sofer, of the Orpene Moshe, came to deliver it to the Katskarebi. And he said to him, I have a confession. I, I coveted this tefillin. And I, I put it on before, before giving it to you. And before the Katsuka even got it, he said, keep it, keep it. I don't want it. I don't want it. I'm not interested in having tefillin that made another Jew break the commandment of don't covet. Take it. I'm not interested. When I read that story, I, I couldn't stop crying. Broke out in tears. So when it, when it comes to coveting, I, I just want to just explain something. Let's say you see someone's car and and you're like, wow, that's such a nice car. I would love a car like that. You are allowed to have that feeling if that motivates you to say, you know what, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to start a new business so that I can make money to have a car like this. Right. You, in other words, if, if someone else's possession inspires you to work 
hard to have such a thing, that's good. Now, for instance, I'll give you the, the Torah example of this. It doesn't have to do with cars. It's called kinas sofrim, which means jealousy among scholars, where someone is like, wow, I just finished all of Shas. I just finished, you know, the whole Gomorrah or all of Mishnayas. And you go, I can't believe it. This guy finished all of Shas and I haven't even started Shas. And then so you say to yourself, you know what, if I dedicate myself and I learn a page a day, I, I also can be one of these people who's finished all of Shas. So this is, that's a type of jealousy which is very good. Now let's say you see someone who has like a beautiful necklace, right? And you're like, wow, that is so beautiful. Like, I can't, that's like for like a queen or for aristocracy. I, I can't even believe how beautiful that necklace is. So let me tell you something. When I walk into a museum and I see a Van Gogh, I don't go, that Van Gogh is so beautiful, I want that Van Gogh in my living room. <laughs> I don't say that. I am very happy just to look at this beautiful Van Gogh. You can admire something of someone else's like you're in a museum. Look at that beautiful thing. Doesn't mean that you have to have it. Just because someone has something nice, it's not a contradiction to your essence that someone has something nice. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. Like you would enjoy it at a museum. That's all. And then you move on. When someone was asking me to explain better why it was so significant that the Vilnagon fasted before he made an emendation in, in a tiny side commentary. I mean, it's amazing that it's a tiny side commentary. It just shows you how many Torah giants there have been and how many just giant, you know, tzaddikim there have been throughout Jewish history that the Vilna Gon has like a little, tiny little pop-up shop on the page of the Gomorrah, you know, and that he fasted before he made a, a change in his like side little commentary, for goodness sakes. And to compare it to walking into the Holy of Holies, that you don't just walk into the Holy of Holies to pick up like a tissue that got dropped. So with that in mind, with that in mind, the world itself, reality itself, is the white fire, and we are the letters. Do you understand? There is a, there is... There is a Torah that's being written through our actions. Every, every day that is around us. I'll tell you something very deep, Neely. You know, so going to get a little Kabbalistic, but anyway, I really, after you learn these things, like a, a lot of times, it becomes like, like shorthand. So like, so if you haven't heard them, it sounds like I'm saying some like very, like very esoteric things. And yet the truth is, is that what I'm really what I'm saying is that like schnitzelis is across the street. And then comes the good thought, right? But, but you have to know these very basic ideas first, okay? So, so there's four worlds and each of the world has a different, different revelation of light in it. The highest of the four worlds has the greatest revelation of light. And there's a certain gematria 
of the yud kei vav kei, which correlates with each of the four worlds. Okay? And, and so the bottom two worlds, the bottom world, the gematria is 52, and the world above ours is 45. Okay? And that's, our world is called ban, because that's 52, base nun is ban, and 45 is ma, okay? Mem hey, okay. So a lot, of, a lot of understanding things is understanding getting the ma and the ban together. And that's a Kabbalistic way to say something very easy in English, which is, oh, we want to get heaven and earth together. Okay? But so why am I then expressing it in a Kabbalistic terminology? To bring out a very amazing point that the Ramachal makes in this book, Adir Bamarum, which is if you add up 45 and 52, if you add up Ma and Ban, if you add up heaven and earth, it's the Gematria Zman, which is time. In other words, I told you what we have before us is a canvas, and we are letters on that canvas, and we're writing something. What is the canvas of reality? Time. How do we get the spiritual and the physical together? We do it against the backdrop of time. We are letters, and our canvas is time. And so, if you want to put your mark on this canvas, which is heaven and earth, which comes together and exhibits, it, exhibits itself before you, in the form of time. It's like you're walking into the Holy of Holies. You have to have such reverence because the canvas that you're operating on is so filled with Kedusha, so filled with holiness. It's not just another day, another scroll, And to tie it to the story of the Katskarebi, there was tremendous yira. How much yira went into him saying, this tefillin caused you to break the Torah? Do you actually think I want that tefillin? Do you think I actually want an object which causes another person to break the Torah? Keep it. Keep it. But do you understand how much he wanted it? This was one of the three sets of tefillin left over after the death of the greatest scribe in the world. And he spent all of his money to get it. But as soon as he understood that this object, as holy as it was on the outside, or as holy as its potential was, 
was actually something that was causing another Jew to sin. He had no interest in it whatsoever. That's Yira. That's Yira. That's understanding that this canvas that we stand in front of time is like walking into the Holy of Holies. So the Rambam says something really interesting. We don't believe in God because of miracles. It's deeper than that. And actually, if you look in the Torah itself, God even says something like really wild. He said, I will even allow false prophets to make miracles in order to test if all of your heart and all of your soul is really with me. Did you hear that? I will even empower a false prophet to do a miracle. And if that false prophet then tells you, oh, we don't need the Torah anymore, we don't need the mitzvahs anymore, or the mitzvahs are outdated, or let me introduce this new practice which is not in the Torah, no way. But you say to yourself, but he just made a miracle. God is telling you, and it's right in the Torah itself, God is telling you, I will empower false prophets to make miracles, to test you to see if your heart and soul is with me, says God. So if you hear about a miracle from another religion, it's, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. Maybe it happened. There's an excellent chance it did not happen. But even if it did happen, this is one of the ways that God tells us that he's testing us. And if you want to see where that is, it's in Parshas Re'eh and Parshas Shoftim. And look in the Rashi, and you'll see what I'm saying is 100% accurate. In the section about false prophets. Okay, let's stop here. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.